Good evening, and welcome to the Business of Giving. I'm Denver Frederick, and we're going to start tonight discussing individuals who donate their professional services to charitable organizations to help make them better at what they do. Because tomorrow kicks off Pro Bono Week, and we'll discuss that with Lindsay Firestone-Gruber, the president and CEO of the Taproot Foundation. The taproot itself is that core root of a plant that helps bring the nutrients from the soil up into the plant in order to allow it to thrive. So similarly, we ourselves as an organization look to play that role for the nonprofit sector, bringing all of the resources we can together in order to then feed these organizations, provide these organizations with that support so that they too can thrive in achieving their missions. And then I will be joined by Dr. Jeffrey Borenstein, the president and CEO of the Brain and Behavior Research Foundation, who tells us why they exist. The mission is to support research in order to better understand how the brain works, better understand what happens when a psychiatric illness occurs, and most importantly, to develop new methods of treatment, methods of prevention, and cures for these conditions. But first, the Business of Giving News Digest for Sunday, October 20th. A new study finds evidence that aspirin may lessen the adverse effects of air pollution exposure on lung function. 49% of American consumers believe it is more important for a company to make the world a better place than to make money for its shareholders. Family foundations are shifting their main grant making from local causes to efforts aimed at addressing policy issues, especially economic inequality, according to a study published by the National Center for Family Philanthropy. A recent survey reveals that 45% of adults admit they find it hard to make new friends. In fact, the average adult hasn't made a new friend in the last five years. And finally, renewables just generated more electricity in the UK than fossil fuels for the first time since the Industrial Revolution. And that is the Business of Giving News Digest for this Sunday evening. I'll be back with Lindsay Firestone-Gruber of the Taproot Foundation right after this. You probably know Sesame Street as the TV show that taught you letters and numbers. But Sesame is so much more. Sesame Workshop is a nonprofit with a mission to help all children grow smarter, stronger, and kinder. Big Bird wants to help, so he started the Yellow Feather Fund to bring education to children in need. You can help, too. Visit yellowfeatherfund.org to learn more or make a donation. That's yellowfeatherfund.org. A simple smile can say so much. It can say thank you, please, or even I love you. Sometimes a smile can say more than words could ever express. But what if you couldn't smile? Unfortunately, that's the sad reality for so many children today. Without the help of life-saving surgery, helpless children find themselves cast aside and all alone. But it doesn't have to be this way. To learn how you can help Smile Train, the world's largest cleft charity, change the world one smile at a time, go to smiletrain.org. Follow the Business of Giving on Twitter at bizofgive and at facebook.com slash businessofgiving. And now, back to the Business of Giving with your host, Denver Frederick, on AM 970, The Answer. Pro bono is a Latin phrase that means for the public good. 
leading the way to help provide critical pro bono services to the nonprofit community is the Taproot Foundation. And here to discuss what they do and how they do it, it's a pleasure to have with us Lindsay Firestone Gruber, the president and CEO of the Taproot Foundation. Good evening, Lindsay, and Hello. welcome to the Business of Giving. Thank you. I am thrilled to be here with you. Let me start by asking you, how and where did pro bono work get started? You know, the origin of pro bono uh, is interesting because first, as you mentioned, it's a legal term, though, as I often joke, people seem to think it's Latin for free legal services. <laughs> and in reality, it's for the public good. Mm -hmm. And we think of pro bono as most commonly associated with legal work, largely because of how much of that movement was able to be created in the 60s with this charge to the legal community that the only way to really bring a lot of our, at the time, new civil rights policies to life was in ensuring that we were able to take it through the courts and through the court system, which really required that type of support. But in reality, individuals, our communities, organizations need all kinds of professional mm -hmm. services, not just in the legal realm. HR, marketing, IT, uh, analysis, strategic planning, all these pieces are critical. And yet, unlike the legal profession, up until a decade or two ago, there really weren't the same types of channels to get access. So in reality, a lot of it either came through the sister-in-law of a board member who happened to be a graphic designer, um, or for the handful of organizations that were lucky enough to have a direct connection to a professional services firm. So what would the difference be between volunteering, mm -hmm. voluntary services, and pro bono work? Sure. We like to describe it as being a part of a spectrum where across every type of volunteering, there's a range of needs on the nonprofit side they're helping to address. So with traditional hands-on volunteering, you are lending extra hands to the organization. You are helping that organization deliver their services directly to the community, whether that's ladling soup in the soup kitchen or stuffing backpacks with the school supplies mm -hmm. that are needed. Critical work to help those organizations bring their programs to life. But as you move across the spectrum, you're getting more focused on the types of skills being used to deliver that support, and then ultimately who you're supporting. So there's a category then of skills-based volunteering. This includes the continued sort of extra hand support, being able to use skills in um, resume review, being able to help do mentoring and tutoring, still helping directly deliver services for the organization. But the other way to use your skills in a volunteer capacity is serving the organization itself, helping the organization's infrastructure and mm -hmm. leadership. And that, for us, is where we get into the category we describe as pro bono professional services. It's taking advantage of those professional skills, the expertise you would otherwise be paid for, yeah. and providing that on a voluntary basis to support organizations. Well, let's talk about paying for. Yeah. Is there an estimated value or average for what an hour of pro bono work is worth? There is, and we've actually just come out with an update recently, as we like to do every few years. So as of um, early October, the new uh, hourly value for pro bono work on average is $195 an hour. Hmm. And that is really That's meant a lot. to be. It, it is. <laughs> yeah. And even then, you know, it's still a sort of low-balled average because it's meant to be used only when you don't otherwise have access to yeah. a market rate. Mm -hmm. So if you're working directly with a professional services firm that otherwise is able on a regular basis to provide some kind of valuation for that service, use that. But in the absence of that, which is really how most pro bono exists, it's yep. incredibly valuable both for the nonprofit beneficiary and for the volunteers or the company behind that work to really be able to put a dollar 
dollar value equivalent against that valuable time and expertise. That certainly is significant because if I remember correctly, I think the value of a volunteer hour, like uh, in a soup kitchen, is about 25 bucks or somewhere in that neck of the woods. That's right. Um, Mm -hmm. There's a really marked difference. And as I mentioned, both have their place and provide incredible value to an organization, but they're serving different needs. And frankly, both also take different resources on the side of the organization as well to bring them to life. So it can be really helpful on both ends to have that distinction, be able to report on it in a valuable way, and use that also to make the case for how important it is both to receive those pro bono services and to make sure they keep getting provided to Got the field. Well, the Taproot Foundation was founded in 2001. Right. Uh, tell us the significance of Taproot. Yes. Well, the name Taproot itself was actually brought about through a pro bono project, uh-huh. leveraging marketing and branding professionals to help um, ensure we had the right branding for the organization, uh, which was founded by Aaron Hurst. And the taproot itself is that core root of a plant that helps bring the nutrients from the soil up into the plant in order to allow it to thrive. So similarly, we ourselves as an organization look to play that role for the nonprofit sector, bringing all of the resources we can together in order to then feed these organizations, provide these organizations with that support so that they too can thrive in achieving their missions. Would you know offhand the number of pro bono hours of that Taproot has been able to help access and provide to nonprofit organizations and what that total value would be since inception? Yes, and actually it's pretty exciting because we've recently had um, an update as we've had the chance to go through where we are currently as an organization. So uh, coming up um, now on being around for the number of years we've had, we have served over 1.6 million volunteer hours through pro bono service valued at just under $200 million. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredibly exciting, and it's through a lot of work from 2001 all the way until now. How difficult is it to match supply and demand? The services nonprofit mm-hmm. organizations really need, and then the supply of qualified and interested professionals uh, out there to provide yeah. them. It's a great question, in particular because for folks who are outside of this field, who aren't living <laughs> and breathing pro bono service on a daily basis in the way we do, it is often a counterintuitive answer. Mm-hmm. Because in reality, with that supply-demand challenge, the real challenge um, tends to be on the side of not having enough nonprofit organizations that are ready um, and available to engage in receiving these services. The need is pervasive. There's no question there. But it takes a lot for an organization who is almost always understaffed and mm-hmm. under-resourced to be able to pause, do some diagnostic work to understand what their core challenges are that they're facing in the first place, be able to actually have the right subject matter expertise on tap to get more specific about the nature of what the cause of that challenge might be, and then have the time and staff availability to participate in receiving pro bono service. Whereas on the flip side, we thankfully, uh, over all these years, have been able to engage tens of thousands of professionals in providing their skills through these pro bono arrangements. So across the field, it really is actually more of an issue from a supply-demand standpoint in having enough ready and prepared um, organizations that are in the right time and place to receive these services. Well, uh, as someone who spent their entire life in the nonprofit sector, that mm-hmm. answer does not surprise me at all. I'm sure. They just yeah. don't have the bandwidth. And I always feel, too, that it, uh, these organizations are going to become more dependent on volunteer or pro bono labor. Because Agreed. we were talking about philanthropy with one of my guests a while ago, and we were saying that the millennials 
can't pay off their student loan, can't buy a house and don't have a lot of money, mm -hmm. and the older population hasn't saved for retirement. Yeah. So I begin to see this voluntarism in the mm -hmm. both the volunteer sense and the pro bono sense becoming more paramount, That's and right. nonprofits would really stand to benefit if they allowed that bandwidth in their organization to provide for, for this kind of help. Absolutely. Allowed and we're enabled to. In, yeah. And I think we're actually at an incredible moment right now. Incredibly challenging, yes, but an incredible moment right now where for the first time in a long time, we're seeing things come together across sectors that all address that particular mm -hmm. challenge. So um, just a few weeks ago, there was an incredibly important announcement that was made courtesy of a number of foundation leaders from the Ford Foundation, from Hewlett Foundation, from Packard, right. and MacArthur. Um, truly identifying and recognizing and putting a stake in the ground for their peers, the idea that the true costs of nonprofit service delivery is far higher mm -hmm. than the costs these organizations are often allowed to share, frankly, in their grant proposals. And identifying how critical it is that funders as well as other parties across this whole ecosystem that supports these organizations recognize that and recognize the fact that having the right kind of IT better enables an organization to fulfill their mission. Mm -hmm. That being able to invest to some degree in the professional development and performance management of their staff allow an organization to better fulfill the project and program that a foundation wants to fund. That's a big deal. It really is. I mean, this overhead myth, everybody has identified and talked about for 10 to 20 mm -hmm. years. And this was one of the first concrete actions that really addressed it. Because yes. these foundations knew, and they've told me, that this conversation was not an honest conversation. Sure. Everybody was playing a game in terms of what that yeah. was, and everybody knew that wasn't the case. I think it was Darren Walker who said in the article that we're kidding ourselves. Yeah, we're kidding ourselves. Exactly. And yeah, that's exactly that's exactly right. Mm -hmm. Well, for somebody who is going to do some pro bono work, what are yeah. the different kinds of engagements uh, in terms of um, you know working with a nonprofit or yeah. the duration, whether it's on site or virtual, sure. or what, what? Give us an idea of what that menu looks like. One thing that's I think very important to bear in mind. Both both for the nonprofits themselves and for any potential volunteer in this arena, is that it doesn't have to look one way. Yeah. Um, which is the same in any other sector. When you think about consulting or professional services projects, you really want to start with the need first mm -hmm. and then identify the approach to addressing that need that's going to make the most sense. So what that can also mean is that providing pro bono services can really be valuable ranging from a one-hour consultation. Mm -hmm. We like to think of it as a virtual office hour, right, yeah. with a subject matter expert, to help the leader of an organization really chew on or discuss or get some professional guidance around a particular challenge all the way through being on a long-term, in-depth, scoped-out pro bono project, or frankly, even serving on the board mm -hmm. um, or operating in a sort of on-call capacity. You know, you see that a lot more in the legal arena where you have a particular law firm or lawyer that's on-call to provide pro bono service in that arena. You rarely see that in a marketing, HR, you know, right. IT capacity. Mm -hmm. But then there are so many different ways you know, in between those two poles, I think, that are incredibly valuable, whether it's a one-day um, deep dive working session on a project, being able to work together over a few weeks. Um, there's a big range. The main thing that matters the most is that both parties up front establish the scope that's going to make the most sense with the challenge at hand and with the amount of time that both people can provide. Right. 
we'll figure it out doesn't work. <laughs> what, what I like to that's say. that's what happens. We'll figure this out. It exactly. never. It never. <laughs> I like to say that good intentions yeah. always bring people together from a pro bono standpoint, but it's intentionality that yeah. actually ensures that pro bono can be effective for everyone involved. Lindsay, what are the biggest advantages uh, to a corporation to partner with Taproot mm-hmm. and then allow their employees or encourage their employees yeah. who may be encouraging them to do this kind of work for a nonprofit organization? Yeah. Well, as you referenced, about 10 years ago, we expanded our work to also working with companies to help them strategize around and then build and run effective pro bono programs leveraging their own employees. Um, And I began that work within our organization um, in large part in response to seeing how many needs, of course, nonprofits had and the diversity of needs and the ability to tap into those skills within the corporate arena. Simultaneously, so many companies, um, particularly back in 2008, Mm -hmm. um, when this work um, in particular began, were seeing a dip, frankly, in their traditional grant making to organizations, and we're needing to focus on retaining their key talent. And it's the combination of those two things that can be incredibly advantageous for companies when they think about a pro bono program. You're able to provide incredibly valuable support to the organizations and communities and issue areas you care about by providing this type of support, which can also take your grant dollars even farther yeah, by yeah. building the capacity. I would of the imagine they're kind of linked together too. They that really way, way, where there are people are, uh, you know, donating their services, mm-hmm. the corporate dollars are going to probably be in, aligned with that. Yeah, many companies provide pro bono services to organizations. They're already their grantees. Yeah, yeah. And something else we like to see is that many companies actually use pro bono programs as a chance to support organizations that are also outside of their more mm-hmm. limited grantee pool. Then in addition, something that has been really pronounced over the last several years is the talent development side of what a pro bono program can do for a company, really being transformational in the area, not just of skill development per se, because folks participating in a pro bono project should always be bringing the right level of professional expertise at the start of the project, but more around these competencies that you so often hear now described uh, in the context of the future of work really being able to make sure folks are bringing empathy to the work they're doing, Mm -hmm. being able to navigate ambiguity, being able to work with external stakeholders and clients, particularly maybe in a business environment where folks' roles on a day-to-day basis are all about working internally, being able to work on a team and navigate in that way. So we've seen an incredible uptick from the talent development side in terms of pro bono programs now really being adopted within the HR realm of a company as well. Are you doing anything with the nonprofit organizations to try to get them up and ready to avail themselves of these services because we know they need them and they know they need them. They just can't set aside that time to prepare themselves to do it. Absolutely. It's one of our key focuses. And there are a few ways that we invest in doing it on an ongoing basis and then a few exciting things we're looking to do going forward. One is that with our online pro bono platform, which Mm -hmm. is just taprootplus.org, always free um, to every organization and volunteer that wants to use it, one of the things we integrated into that is the chance to have these online consultations. Um, Again, these sort of virtual office hour sessions. That can be an outstanding way for someone at a nonprofit organization to be able to direct tap someone who has subject matter expertise in a particular area to talk through a challenge. Mm -hmm. What I often like to say is, you know, when you're not feeling well and you go to the doctor, you're not expected to go in and say, I have a pain in my side, it's appendicitis. What you're going to do is operate, give me penicillin, send me on my way. You go in and you say, oh, no, I have a pain in that. my side. Yeah, well, <laughs> thanks to, to Google. And <laughs> True, and I'm sure the doctors love, love when it, that happens. Love it. <laughs> um, but you're expected to go in and say, I have a pain in my side, mm-hmm. right? And, and you let folks who have expertise in this area work with you to understand what the diagnosis is and the treatment that might make the most sense. Mm-hmm. And yet, for some reason, we 
we expect nonprofit organizations in particular to be responsible for somehow being able to tap the right expertise to diagnose their own needs and identify the types of solutions that are needed. So having that immediate access to have that one-hour consultation or to come back for more, frankly, can be a really transformational way to start to get to the core root challenge um, that is really defining a challenge for an organization. In addition, we have readiness trainings and workshops, um, and we have a model of pro bono we call the Scopeathon, which is an event specifically focused solely on helping organizations scope out what the actual challenge is at hand. And I think that's important for folks to to recognize that even just the the diagnostic work, mm-hmm. that type of support in and of itself is a valuable pro bono project, a valuable skills based volunteering exercise. And companies and individual volunteers and board members would really be well served to remember that. Um, and to offer that type of support to the nonprofits with whom they work, where all they have to, to say is a category of challenge they have, as opposed to being expected already to come to that core diagnosis before getting support. Yeah, and I love that idea of that online virtual hour, because mm-hmm. it's hard sometimes for a nonprofit organization to know the real value of pro bono work. Sure. And asking them to take a big leap might be too much, but to get an hour mm-hmm. and to see the value of that hour and then maybe you get another hour and then That's begin right. to say, you know, we could actually use a couple of yep. people like this. And you it's get a wonderful way to, to get them in the front door. Exactly. You get your project scope. You submit your project description online on Tapper Plus. You get your project right away. Or you take the results from your conversation and you bring them back internally to have mm-hmm. a project be done or to work in another capacity. It really is a gateway yeah, um, yeah. on both sides, frankly, that yeah. can be helpful in opening that Exactly up. right. Well, tomorrow mm-hmm. is a starter pro bono week, which runs from October 20th to the 26th. What's the significance of that week? And what are a few of the things you have lined up? Sure. Uh, So Pro Bono Week was started by the American Bar Association. And we were thrilled a number of years ago when we found out about it and said, hey, can we co-opt this a bit, right, outside of just the legal profession? Because we obviously feel very strongly about the power and importance of pro bono. But it is not a topic in and of itself Mm -hmm. that will often have a lot of attention. And so we worked a number of years ago to be able to spread this idea of what is now Global Pro Bono Week across a global network of pro bono organizations, a network that we helped found along with the BMW Foundation, in order to have it be something that could be adopted by organizations everywhere that are a part of providing pro bono support, which means over the course of Pro Bono Week, there will be thousands of stories told by nonprofits who have received pro bono, by intermediaries who have helped make pro bono happen, the companies that are a part of it, the volunteers. For us, um, in Pro Bono Week this year, we're particularly focusing on that storytelling, Mm -hmm. being able to share some incredible stories of what it's meant for organizations and for volunteers when they've been able to come together in this way. And Giving Tuesday is just around the corner. It's going to be December 3rd this year, and you've developed a Giving Tuesday Pro Bono Toolkit. Tell us about that. Yes. We've been so excited to be able to bring this to life the last few years. Giving Tuesday is such an incredible campaign and opportunity to direct attention in that giving spirit um, after Black Friday. And actually, I think it's eclipsed Black Friday, because Black Friday is probably starting around now. You know, everybody's (laughs) trying to preempt it, so it's becoming bigger than Black Friday and... uh, and Small Business Saturday. It, it, it is very true and, and something that is really incredible to see. And we love the fact that so many folks are now inclined to want to give on that day. The challenge is that for the nonprofit organizations to really best take advantage of it, 
unsurprisingly, it would mean it's helpful for them to have some good digital marketing to make sure that their websites mm -hmm. and their giving platforms are as up-to-date and high-capacity as possible to really take advantage of it. And it often can be right around the time of Giving Tuesday uh -huh. that folks might be inclined to start offering that support, but we've recognized that it's actually several months in advance for sure. that it's most valuable for organizations to get that support. So now in partnership with them, we began having webinars in the spring and summer and providing a toolkit that enables organizations to get the pro bono support they need in time to have that campaign ready, to have that new web page up and launched, to really dig in on the key messages and other components that frankly often are the key ingredients to effective fundraising. That way they're ready to take advantage of Giving Tuesday. I just get worried that nonprofit organizations are going to start to have their Giving Tuesday a week earlier than the real Giving Tuesday, the way Walmart and everybody else does when they have their early Black Fair Friday enough. sales. But if people want to give both times, that's, they will not uh, it's argue It's good for that. everybody, yeah. yeah. Uh, Lindsay, what's it like to work at the Taproot Foundation? What do you think makes a corporate culture so special? Yeah. You know, I have to say, I think I am a, a very specific example um, of how amazing it is to work at Taproot because I myself have actually been at the Taproot Foundation since 2004. Mm -hmm. So clearly I've wanted to stick around. Um, and in addition to how incredibly important and inspiring our mission is, I think one of the things that we hear time and time again from all of the staff who've come through the Taproot Foundation is how amazing our fellow roots are, as we call um, our colleagues at the Taproot Foundation, and how important our core values are to us as an organization. We've been really intentional in the way we've articulated them. Uh, we believe strongly in having pragmatic optimism, mm -hmm. which I think is a very apt description for really being ambitious and wanting to change the world and making sure that we're arming ourselves appropriately to be able to do that. Yes. We believe that everything we do has to be impact-oriented, so we keep that core beneficiary in our mind first and foremost. We believe in progress. Mm -hmm. and we don't want to just be another good nonprofit organization. We want to keep moving forward with what's possible and seeing around the corner. And we believe in playful professionalism. We bring our full selves to work and recognize that that is part of what makes us an incredible organization. And that is really the, the core list of ingredients that makes a culture at Taproot so incredible and allows us to have amazingly intelligent, diverse, creative people all together towards this common cause of making sure nonprofits have what they need to be successful. Four wonderful pillars. Yeah. Let me close with this, and I want to pick up what you said a moment ago about your pro bono story yeah. and that big promotion you have. <laughs> Tell us why that is so important, what it can do to help advance this field, and then share a story with us. I would love to. And as you can imagine, it's always hard for me to narrow down so many incredible stories into just one, but I'm, I'm pleased to be able to do that. One of the reasons why it is so important is that when you think of something like pro bono service, something that is incredibly valuable but a little more indirect, mm -hmm. you don't necessarily have the same benefit of being able to show the picture of the adorable puppies that the shelter is then helping to support. You're not on the front line. You don't have that same direct connection. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But we know the incredible connection one can have when you see what can happen when an organization gets some support in an area that allows their own programming to take off, that mm -hmm. helps improve their effectiveness um, and their efficiency and their reach. So that's why we're gathering those stories to be able to showcase them as a part of Pro Bono Week. So I have many of my own, as you can imagine. <laughs> yeah. But one that actually just came back to my mind this past week 
was the incredible work we had to do um, actually here in New York um, with the Children's Museum of the Arts, Mm -hmm. which is an amazing institution in and of itself, but also does incredible work for the community in having programming that is open and available to students and children coming from a variety of settings and really having those connections with a variety of institutions to help make sure they get access to those types of programs and support. And it's an incredible example because Barbara Hunt McClanahan, who was the executive director when we first became acquainted with the museum, participated in one of our 9-11 Day of Service Uh e-consulting events, which we're able to do courtesy of American Express's support. And it allowed her, as a nonprofit executive, to be able to have three rotating consultations with an expert in HR, an expert in marketing, and an expert in financial analysis. And she came up to me afterwards, and I remember this so clearly, and said that this was exactly what she and the organization had needed in order to then identify where they needed to prioritize their work across those three areas. Fast forward to me seeing her just a couple years later at another pro bono event. And she let me know that they had actually created plans and strategies based on each of those different areas of advisory. And they had pursued follow-up pro bono projects, including one um, through an incredible program we were able to do with UBS that helped redefine the way the museum was able to best take advantage of their programming of their open hours, um, of their fees, in order to make sure as many children and families as possible can be served. And I did actually unfortunately learn just the other week that Barbara sadly passed away this summer. And I was so proud and pleased of what we were able to do together. Yeah. So gutted to learn of her passing, but so honored to have had the chance to work together and be a part of the incredible legacy that she's left. Yeah, an incredible museum. legacy, a transformational engagement for sure. Absolutely. Well, Lindsay Firestone Gruber, the president and CEO of the Taproot Foundation, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. What action would you like listeners to take, whether they're an individual with some skills, maybe representing a corporation, or so importantly, maybe part of a nonprofit? (laughs) Uh, The easy thing that can actually be relevant for everyone you just listed is to go to taprootplus.org. It's T-A-P-R-O-O-T-P-L-U-S dot org. That's a great way to get started as a nonprofit, as a business professional, as a company, um, in finding an easy, effective, and well-thought-out way to be able to engage in pro bono service. And from there, there's so many other resources available on the Taproot Foundation website that can help you get started to receive pro bono or to find the best ways possible to engage in providing it. You sing that website, it's like it's a jingle. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe we should have one. We'll get a a pro bono project to get one developed. There you go. Well, thanks, Lindsay. It was a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for having me here. So glad to be a part of this. I'll be back with more after this. Sport is the common denominator in the world. And if there's any place where there's equality, it's really in sports. RISE stands for the Ross Initiative in Sports for Equality. We're dedicated to promoting understanding, respect, and equality in sports and beyond. We want people to speak up, take the pledge, and rise up against racism. And we'll rise up. I pledge. To treat everyone with respect, respect, and dignity. I will not tolerate discrimination or harassment of any kind. I will speak up. Speak up. Whenever I know discrimination is happening, and I will stand up. Get up. Rise up. For victims. Take the pledge at risetowin.org. 
Well, my husband is a retired sergeant from the Air Force. Well, he was in the Army for 14 years and an MP. 23 million veterans, their heroes who need our help. Well, I'm here because my daughter has had her third surgery for cancer. We've had some difficulties, so we're here quite some time. We're going on to three weeks. When our heroes' families need help, they turn to Fisher House. We learned about the Fisher House through the doctor, and we were so grateful because who has three weeks to be able to come and stay at a hotel? Fisher House is a safe, free place to stay for families of wounded warriors and veterans receiving treatment at VA and military medical centers. Fisher House is not only a home away from home, it was like family away from family. Thank you, Fisher House. Thank you, Fisher House. Helping military and veterans families. Fisher House at fisherhouse.org. Sometimes having family close by is a hero's best medicine. Top companies have now begun to discover a reliable source for skilled new talent, and they're finding great success with employees who are productive, engaged, and innovative. Explore the country's largest untapped talent pool, 24 million Americans with disabilities. The National Organization on Disability is the leading partner for companies looking to accelerate their disability employment efforts, attract, hire, and retain. Learn more at NOD.org. If you're interested in reading transcripts of guests' interviews from the business of giving, you can find them at denverfrederick.wordpress.com. And now back to the show on AM 970, The Answer. An issue that has been ignored far too long, mental health is becoming increasingly important to more and more Americans. This is a result of what we've seen on the news, but also issues in our own lives, those with our family, those with our friends. The Brain and Behavior Research Foundation is the largest non-governmental funder of mental research grants in the world. And it's a pleasure to have with us tonight their president and CEO, Dr. Jeffrey Borenstein. Good evening, Jeff, and welcome to the Business of Giving. Good evening. Thank you for having me. The Brain and Behavior Research Foundation was founded in 1987. Tell us what the mission of the organization is. The mission is to support research in order to better understand how the brain works, better understand what happens when a psychiatric illness occurs, and most importantly, to develop new methods of treatment, methods of prevention, and cures for these conditions. And in terms of those grants, how much have you given out over these 32 years? Over these 32 years, we have provided over $400 million in grants to scientists around the world. Mm -hmm. And we select scientists, and we have a scientific council that consists of the top brain scientists in the world, and they're the ones who make the selection as to what grants should be supported. Mm -hmm. And the decision is based upon ideas that are innovative, that would not otherwise receive funding from the government. And this way, that scientist could begin the process of getting the data that they need to go and receive further funding from the government. Mm -hmm. What would the definition of mental illness be? Mental illness, similar to physical illness, is when a particular organ, namely the brain, Mm -hmm. has something go wrong. And it can result in conditions such as depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, chemical dependency, Mm 
all of which um, are unfortunately a lot more common than we realize. As, as people are aware, one in five people experience one of those disorders. And um, basically, everybody knows someone. <laughs> That's for sure. Everybody has someone important to them that is affected by one of these conditions. Those one in five numbers, are those numbers going up um, due to the pressures, let's say, of modern society, or are we just more aware of them? It's a very good question. I don't know that we have clear-cut information on whether or not it's going up, but certainly people are more aware of it, and fortunately, more people are actually seeking help and receiving treatment. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, many people don't seek help and don't get treatment, but it, people are more aware of these conditions. Yeah. And I know you've spoken about the fact that when you have a, a, a mental illness dis disorder, in many ways, it's like being sick. You know, if I had strep throat, I wouldn't be categorized of having strep throat for the rest of my life. But as you say, when people get treatment, they can get better and then move on with their lives. But we sometimes as a society don't treat it quite that way. We really continue to have what's referred to as stigma yeah. towards these illnesses. And in many ways, I think stigma is too weak of a term. Mm. I think it's more prejudice, um, that people are actually prejudiced about these illnesses. And that stands in the way of people getting the help that they may need in order to get better. Mm -hmm. Speak about parental guilt. And I speak about this, I guess, um, from people that I know, because parents sometimes, if they have a clinically depressed child, for instance, ask themselves, where did we go wrong? What could I have done? Uh, they beat themselves up. That's not the way to handle that, is it? Absolutely not. And you know what? I think that parents often feel guilt if anything goes awry yeah. for their child, uh, and including a mental health issue. The reality is that these conditions are very common and are treatable. So if a parent is concerned about their child, perhaps the child seems increasingly anxious. Maybe they're not functioning at the level that they normally had functioned. Maybe their schoolwork is, has mm -hmm. decreased. Maybe they're not as social as they had been. They should seek help, just as they would if they saw their child was limping <laughs> or in pain, physical pain. They would seek help. Don't be shy about looking for help. Are there any other signs of mental illness that we should be aware of? There are a number of important signs that people should be aware of. First of all, um, a change in functioning. So if somebody really isn't functioning at the level that they normally would, that's a, that's a cause of concern. Yeah, for a period of time. For especially. a period of time. Mm. Uh, if somebody is seems particularly anxious, um, if somebody is very depressed, tearful, has difficulty concentrating, difficulty with sleep, either too much or too little, mm. maybe some difficulty with self-care, not grooming themselves at the normal level. These are all potential signs that people should be aware of. And a very important sign uh, is the issue of suicide. Mm -hmm. If somebody says something about wanting to end their life or you're concerned that someone may be thinking along those lines, don't be shy about asking. Mm -hmm. People often have the misperception that if you ask, it'll give the person the idea, mm -hmm. and therefore don't say anything, don't ask. But the reality is, and research has shown this, that asking about 
if somebody has thoughts of hurting themselves or killing themselves, can actually save a life. And certainly doesn't put the idea into the person's mind could help them now get the help that they need. Jeff, do we know the number of people who should be seeking help who actually go and get help? The, I don't know that we have a specific um, statistic on that, but we do know that, for instance, half of the people who have a clinical depression do not receive treatment. Mm. So if you think about that, if we said that sentence about diabetes or pneumonia, it would be the headline in every newspaper. <laughs> yeah. But that half the people who have a clinical depression don't receive treatment is nobody's even speaking about it. And it's because it often gets overlooked. Mm -hmm. And is it just that or are there an adequate number of mental health professionals to deal with the in incidents of people who are being challenged at the moment? You're bringing up a very good point, which is that we really do not have enough mental health professionals to do that. There's a shortage of psychiatrists and other mental health professionals. That being said, that fact shouldn't block somebody mm -hmm. from getting the help that they need because people can get help if they seek that help. And often the, the first step is to speak to your primary care doctor and say, hey, doctor so-and-so, I've been feeling depressed, I've been feeling anxious, and get some guidance from him or her. Yeah. You know what gets me mad is that very often when you do go to your primary care doctor, they don't ask questions about this the way they do about all your other physical conditions, and certainly not to the degree that they should. At least that's my firsthand experience. I, I agree with you. This is an issue, and, and a part of what the field is trying to do is to get the primary care doctors to ask hmm. more about these things because it should be a routine type of area of questioning just as you're checking to see if the person has a cough yeah. or a headache or any other physical so symptom. <laughs> right. Whatever it may be. It should be, how's your sleep? Mm -hmm. How's your mood? How are things going? So more and more, I think, primary care physicians realize this. But, we, but if they don't ask you, you need to volunteer it and tell them so they could help you. Yeah, that's good advice. Well, to get a better sense of what you do, you fund four kinds of research. And I'm going to ask you to say about a word or two about each, starting with basic research. Basic research is crucial. And it relates to how we, how we can better understand how the brain works. Mm -hmm. So what, what can we learn about the cells in the brain, the connection between cells in the brain? And I'll give you an example of what we've learned over time. When I went to medical school, I was taught that old brains do not grow new cells. And old was after the age of two. Yeah, yeah. I even learned that, and I didn't go to medical school. Exactly. <laughs> we now know that's not true. Mm -hmm. Older brains do grow new cells, even brains that are our age. Yeah. We won't say any specific age with that, but older brains do grow new cells. That's the best news I've had in a long time. Exactly. <laughs> through a process called um, neurogenesis, mm -hmm. and that's growing new cells and making new connections between cells. Exercise is an important impetus to that. So a part of brain health and having good mental health is exercise. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you even know that anecdotally. Yes. You know, you, if you work out, you just feel more alert, more alive. You think a, a little clearer, as long as you don't do too much. <laughs> you, the, too much of anything isn't good. And it's above and beyond the endorphins that we think of from yeah. the runner's high. Right. It is really the neurogenesis, mm -hmm. the growth of new brain cells. 
that is very healthy. Another area you fund uh, is new technologies. Speak to that. Yes. So new technologies refers to developing new approaches to study the brain or treat psychiatric conditions. Mm -hmm. I'll give you an example. Um, This is something that's now widely used. Uh, It's called transcranial magnetic stimulation, TMS. Mm -hmm. And that was um, developed for the use of depression uh, initially by Dr. Mark George at the University of South Carolina. And Dr. George received initial funding from Brain and Behavior Research Foundation to, to develop this. This is the kind of thing, you know, you would think, wait a second, magnets to the head is going to treat depression? It <laughs> sounds, but our scientific council was able to see what he had written and developed in terms of the basic science and why that may work. And then he received the initial funding to develop that. This is now being used by hundreds of thousands of people to treat depression. It's been approved by the FDA for over 10 years for depression and recently has been approved for other indications as well. You know, we spoke a moment ago about the signs of mental illness, but probably nothing more important than early detection and intervening at a very early stage. And that's the third area that you fund. It's a very important issue. So one of the areas that early intervention is crucial relates to schizophrenia. Mm. By making a diagnosis right away and getting the person into treatment, that can forestall a full-blown psychotic episode, and it can help the person function at the highest level possible and live a full, healthier life. That's an example of early intervention. Mm -hmm. Another relates to even younger people than that typically would occur in teenage years, early 20s, the in younger people is anxiety. Mm. For many years, we as a field and certainly society has minimized youth anxiety. We now know that it's important to do treatment. Um, it may be talk therapy, it may be other interventions, but leaving anxiety just sit there, it can get worse and it could then expand into depression or other conditions. Yeah, and I'm certainly no expert on this, but it does seem like it's getting worse as a result of social media and seeing how you fit on the continuum with all your friends on Facebook and what they're doing and whether you're in or out or the bullying. There's a lot going on these days. I think that we need to do more research on the effects of social media, Mm -hmm. but certainly being connected 24-7 to social media, seeing what other people do, the issue of bullying. And in the olden days, if you would be bullied, it would be bad. It would happen in the schoolyard, but then you'd go home and you'd be safe. Close your door. (laughs) Right. Now you go home and maybe it's even worse on social media. Yes. So I think that we need to step back as a society and see what can, you know, there's a lot of pluses to social media, but what are the downsides and what can we do to help? Yeah, no, that relentless nature, I just can't even imagine. Uh, Like anything else, you need to rest. And if you're being bullied, at least you got used to be able to rest. There's no rest now. There's no rest. There's no rest. And then finally, uh, the fourth area is next generation therapies. What do you got going on there? Well, this is extremely important. Um, There was just recently an article in the New York Times about an article that um, recently came out in the New England Journal by Dr. Helen Mayberg, who's currently at Mount Sinai, um, looking at deep brain stimulation to treat depression. And this is still something that is in the experimental stage, 
deep brain stimulation has been used to treat Parkinson's disease for many years. Right. And based on basic research that looked at specific areas of the brain that may be related to depression, Dr. Mayberg and colleagues have use deep brain stimulation in people who have what's referred to as refractory depression. Mm. Doesn't get better from anything else. So this is an intervention that is a major intervention because it requires surgery in the brain. But the study found that for people who respond to this intervention, the response continues for eight years. Hmm. So, and they are continuing to follow people. So this is something that's, that is on the horizon, is a new approach to people who have very severe depression that doesn't get better with anything else. It's not usual that that's the case, but for those people, this is a very important intervention. Yeah, very exciting and very promising. Let me ask you about childhood trauma. How common or rare is it, and how long is its impact across a lifespan? The issue of childhood trauma is extremely important. We know that Uh, People who have experienced trauma, whether it be physical abuse, sexual abuse, other types of trauma, are at an increased risk of developing a psychiatric illness right then and there during that time frame and down the road. So childhood trauma is very important. It's important for people, if they've experienced, to share that they've experienced that when Mm. they go to a doctor so Mm -hmm. the doctor is aware of it. That being said, there are many people who have had that kind of trauma, and are fine, and they don't need treatment. They don't have depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress. And there are many people who never had any kind of trauma who do develop those types of illnesses. Mm -hmm. So it's an important issue and one that shouldn't be um, left under the rug. It should be spoken about. The issue, I think, on the top of everyone's mind these days is suicide. Um, We see it among young people. It's becoming more pronounced among professionals. I was surprised to see the number of nurses and veterinarians, certainly here in New York City on our own police force. I think we've had nine officers who've taken their own lives this year, and certainly among veterans, which is about an average of 20 a day. Um, Do we understand why this is happening, and what measures can be taken to successfully and better address this issue? It's such an important issue. It's such a tragedy um, that... Um, more people die from suicide in our country than from homicide. Yeah, it's a, and car it's crashes. A, yeah, it's, it's, it's a tragedy. Mm-hmm. The, um, a few things can be done. First of all, as we discussed earlier, if you're concerned about a loved one, don't be shy. Ask them. Offer help. Mm-hmm. Get them help. Uh, if somebody has thoughts of suicide, this is an emergency. And just as if they were clutching their chest with chest pain, you would take them to the emergency room. If they are clutching their mind with thoughts of suicide, they need help right Don't away. Don't dismiss it. Don't dismiss it. Don't ever dismiss it. The next thing is um, if somebody has depression, then it, it really does need to be treated because somebody with depression is at a greater risk of suicide. Yeah. If somebody has chemical dependency, it needs to be treated. Uh, That increases the risk as well. There are some very good things uh, on the horizon with regards to it. So there's a a newly approved medicine called esketamine. Mm -hmm. It's a form of ketamine. And this medicine has been shown to uh, be a rapid-acting antidepressant. Unlike the typical medicines that can take a number of weeks 
to work. The S-ketamine, ketamine, has been shown to be rapidly acting. It could work in two to four hours. Hmm. And in people who have suicidal thoughts, it also lifts that suicide risk during that period of time. Those medicines, while available, still there's still work that needs to be done. Right. They're not fully ready for prime time. They can be helpful for some people. But the mechanism of action of those medicines may lead us to even better medicines that can work quicker and help decrease this tragic suicide rate. Has there been any research done on resilience where people can train themselves to better face life's challenges? There has been um, work done on resilience, and it's, a, it's an important issue. So some of the work that, that has looked at resilience has spoken about the importance of a social support system, mm -hmm. making use of your family, making use of friends, the importance of religious beliefs, if a person is religious, to make use of that, the importance of purpose in life, yeah. that there's a reason that a person is here, they're serving a purpose, whether it be for family, for friends, professionally. So there are things that can be helpful. And then along those lines, there's steps that people could take. Proper exercise, proper eating, sleep habits. Um, these are all things that people can do to build resilience and therefore be better able to deal with the stresses that we all go through. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sometimes it can really hit particularly young people, right between the eyes, especially if they've been coddled, if you will, and they get out on their own, and they just aren't equipped. It, it, it's very challenging yeah. for young people. You know, I, as a psychiatrist, one thing that I've noticed over the years is that every age really, really does have its challenges. Yeah, you're right. It, it's hard to be a, a, a child going to nursery school, leaving your mother for the first time. It's hard to do that. It's hard to be a teenager and all the hard challenges that come. Hard being a mother and having your it's child go. It's hard to go. be the mother letting the <laughs> child go. Exactly. It's hard to be an, an, a, in middle age where you may have parents that have some illness and kids that need all of your help. Yeah, the old sandwich generation, right? Exactly. And mm. then it could be harder to be older where you may have medical problems, et cetera. There's challenges at every age. So therefore, building resilience is useful across the lifespan. No question. You know, I was impressed that 100% of every dollar donated for research is invested in your research grants. And how are you able to do that? We are very, very fortunate that um, we have two family foundations who from the get-go saw the importance of being able to support research, and they wanted to f put funding in place for the administrative work mm -hmm. of the foundation so that every dollar that somebody donates for research goes to the research. In addition, the Scientific Council that I already mentioned that consists of 184 of the top, top brain scientists led by Dr. Herb Pardis, oh, yeah. who is... An extraordinary, a legend is what he is. <laughs> he, he is a legend, and having the opportunity to work closely with him is a privilege. Oh, yeah. Um, and part of when Dr. Pardis put together the Scientific Council, um, they don't get paid mm -hmm. for the work that they do. They volunteer their time. And in many ways, that demonstrates how Brain and Behavior Research Foundation truly is a collaboration between the scientists who care so much about these issues and the donors 
who are so generous at all levels. We have some very wealthy donors who are very generous at that level, and we have people of more moderate means who are also very, very generous because they want to see better treatments and ultimately cures for these conditions. And as you said earlier, um, you're really the risk capital of this field. You can take a chance, you can roll the dice, and if something works, not that you're not careful in rolling those dice, mind you, but then the federal government and others can pick it up and take it to a completely different stage. And that's just a wonderful complementary relationship that you have. It, it really is both for the specific science that we support and also for the scientists. Mm-hmm. It's very, very hard for a young scientist to begin a career in research. Yeah. And part of what we're able to do, because the bulk of our support goes to younger scientists, mm-hmm. is give them that foot in the door so that they could get that early data to then go get federal funding. And so many of those young scientists have, over the past 30 years, gone on to become senior scientists and mentors to other young scientists. Yeah, and I've noted that that $400 million you've given out in research grants, if you really follow that, it's into the billions in terms of what it has led to. It, the statistics are extraordinary yeah. in terms of that multiplier effect. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, we really are very much like a venture capital fund right. for those new ideas. Right. And, and with any venture capital firm, if nine out of 10 of them don't work, so what? If you hit the big one, <laughs> you know what I mean? You change everything. It makes a very big difference. And the, the um, track record over the years, because of the extraordinary judgment of a scientific council has been wonderful. Yeah. You host an Emmy-nominated show that recently launched its sixth season. It's called Healthy Minds with Dr. Jeffrey Borenstein. Tell us a little bit about it and where people can find it. Well, people can find um, the link to the show on our website, bbrfoundation.org. The show is um, now being broadcast on stations, public television stations around the country, and it's also available online um, at pbs.org. And you could get to that location through the uh, Brain and Behavior Research Foundation website. The show, I developed the show because I felt that we as a field really weren't reaching people Mm -hmm. um, in a way that hit home. And I wanted to have a TV show so that people could watch it in the comfort of their home and learn about psychiatric illnesses find out about cutting-edge treatment, hear about people who may be recovering from these conditions, and really open up conversations about depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, chemical dependency, all of these conditions so that people wouldn't suffer in silence, that they would seek help. Yeah. And doing this show, I can attest to the fact that it actually keeps you cutting edge because to prepare for these shows, you have to really stay on top of things. I have had the privilege of interviewing top clinicians, yeah, you've had top some great researchers, guests. Yeah. and also people recovering from conditions mm-hmm. who share their experience that, that helps other people then go seek treatment. Yeah. Let me close with this, Jeff. There are some 44 million Americans who experience a mental health issue. How do you believe the national conversation surrounding this issue has to change in the coming years to a better address this crisis and, as you said before, to eliminate the stigma? I think that the, the more that we have conversations like this, the better it gets. I think the younger generation is much better. Mm-hmm. I think younger people are more open to talking about it with each other than people from the older generation. I think we need to push that. 
I think that when a celebrity, a well-known person, speaks about their own depression, anxiety, any of the above, that adds to the conversation. So the more that we can have people talk about it, share their experience, the less that it's a stigma. In many ways, cancer had been this way, and now people are much less shy, much less embarrassed. There's much less stigma about cancer, and we need to do that for mental illness as well. You're absolutely right. In fact, I can remember when it was called the big C because we didn't even want to use the word cancer. It we was would that whisper. much in the closet. We, yes, we would whisper that word. <laughs> That's right. Well, Dr. Jeffrey Bornstein, the president and CEO of the Brain and Behavior Research Foundation, I want to thank you for being here this evening. Tell us what people will find on that website that you just talked about. There's a lot of information, really cutting-edge information, about all of the key psychiatric illnesses. So if you're concerned about depression, go to the website and see the most cutting-edge information. We do webinars on a monthly basis mm -hmm. on different topics, so there's the recording of those webinars are available. Our Brain and Behavior magazine is available online. It comes out quarterly. And as we already discussed, the link to the Healthy Minds TV show is available as well. Well, great stuff. Thanks, Jeff. It was a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. And that is this week's show. Next week, my guest will be Carly Fiorina, the former CEO of Hewlett Packard, presidential candidate, and the founder of the Unlocking Potential Foundation. So you'll want to be here for that. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. And do return next Sunday evening for the business of giving. The preceding program is paid for by the friends and partners of the business of giving.